1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
2: everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Brown, a host of the channel, and I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history with a focus on environment and science. Today, we'll be talking about the new edited volume. Performing Environmentalism's Expressive Culture and Ecological Change, edited by John Holmes McDowell, Catherine Borland, Rebecca Dirksen, and Sue Tui, published by University of Illinois Press in 2021. To discuss the book today, I am joined by Dr. John Holmes McDowell and Dr. Rebecca Dirksen. John and Rebecca, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for for agreeing to come on the show. Um, and before we we really dive into performing environmentalisms, um, we just like to ask about your um, your your bios and and just just to give the audience a, a little bit of uh, flavor about yourselves.
0: All right. So um, I'm Rebecca Dirksen, associate professor in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology here at Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, I am also an affiliate faculty member with the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies, the Latin American Music Center, and the Center for, Glo- uh, for the Study of Global Change here on campus. Um, I have also held positions as a fellow at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music and also at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. Um, and uh, one of the things that I am really excited about that has brought us together for this conversation today is. Um, serving as co-founder along with John McDowell and Sue Tui um, of, of DIRT, or the Diverse Environmentalism's research team, um, for which I'm serving as its current director. I am formally trained as a pianist and an ethnomusicologist, and I'm also the author of the recent book After the Dance, The Drums Are Heavy, Carnival, Politics, and Musical Engagements in Haiti, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2020. After nearly two decades of involvement and many years cumulatively spent in the country, Haiti is a place that has become home for me. As a music scholar, I work across musical genres of Haiti, um, looking at these so-called grand challenge questions, so um, matters concerned with development studies or disaster studies and environmental justice. My applied, engaged, and activist research has been profoundly shaped by events such as the 2010 earthquake and subsequent political turmoil that we've seen over the past decade or so. And I have also focused my efforts um, on environmental justice around the issues of trash and sanitation, as well as deforestation and efforts to plant
2: trees. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Rebecca. Thank you. And thank you again for being on the show. Um, John, would you like to, to give a little bit about your background?
1: Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'd like to do this because I, I think most academics prefer to have other people talk about us than we talk about ourselves, but I, I can manage this. So uh, I'm a, a folklorist, uh, recently retired from the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University, so De- uh, Rebecca and I are, are colleagues. And uh, uh, yeah, I come out of an anthropology uh, background with a specialization in folklore and uh, over the years, I've been interested in the uh, how speech is a uh, significant aspect, element in uh, culture. And in particular, I've been intrigued by, uh, I guess you could say, that how stylistics, aesthetic uh, tendencies, how those uh, create certain kinds of impact in terms of what you can do uh, with verbal repertoires. So that's been a consistent focus. My work has been Uh, a lot of it has been in Latin America. I've done uh, some work in Mexico with the corrido tradition, which we won't really be delving into today. More relevant for the present conversation is the work I've done over the years uh, in the Andes. I've been very involved in uh, working with indigenous languages and cultures, especially in the kind of uh, central Andes, uh, the south of Colombia and the north of Ecuador. And then, uh, yeah, this has led me uh, really, following the lead of the people I talk to down there, uh, to become extremely interested in uh, how people think about the environment and uh, really uh, the extent to which they care about and want to take care of the environment, the places where they live.
2: Well, thank you as well for that that wonderful introduction, and I'm I'm really excited to hear more more about your both of your. Um, your contributions to, to the text as we move forward. But before, before we get to the nitty gritty, um, would you like to just give us a little bit of an overview about the text and, and John, let's, uh, let's start
1: with you. Sure. Yeah, Matthew, I'm happy to do that. Well, I'm holding in my hands here, this uh, beautiful book. Uh, it's got uh, a photograph of some Arctic drummers, uh, across the top of it. And, uh, it's a, a book that came together, uh, a number of uh, colleagues at Indiana University, Rebecca, myself, our other, our other one of our co-editors, uh, Sue who who is not with us, uh, not in this session today, Katie Borland uh, over at Ohio State. But really was uh, here uh, at Indiana University, it was uh, a conversation that started in the department uh, of, of Folklore and Ethnomusicology uh, with Rebecca, myself, and Sue. And out of that conversation, which was, was really about cultural sustainability, those kinds of issues, uh, we started contacting uh, colleagues. We knew folklorists and ethnomusicologists around the country. Of course, in other settings, there are a lot of people who are interested. A lot of scholars are uh, pursuing these themes in their own research areas. And we pulled together a symposium in 2017, uh, really very exciting uh, uh, series of interactions that we had. Uh, colleagues came in from, uh, re- well, all across the country. And uh, out of that symposium, um, we decided it would be nice to pull together uh, some of the papers uh, and put it into um, a, um, an edited volume. And that's indeed what we have in performing environmentalisms. So that's the the kind of backstory on it. Uh, I can say that uh, the book is uh, structured into uh, three sections. So uh, we've organized the essays uh, thematically. Uh, The first part is really, uh, we call it Perspectives on Diverse Environmentalisms. It has uh, four essays there, including uh, mine. The second section is uh, titled Performing the Sacred, and that has three Essays there three chapters and one of those uh, is co-authored by Rebecca in that second uh, section performing the sacred and then the third section is environmental attachments and we have uh, three papers essays uh, chapters there and uh, we do have an afterword by our colleague uh, in anthropology at Indiana University Eduardo Brondizio and uh, then. Uh, at the other end of things, at the beginning of the book, we have an introduction uh, that is set, uh, basically does the job of setting the scene uh, for these essays. And that's co-authored by Katie Bornland, myself and Sue Tui. Uh So yeah, in a nutshell, that's where the book came from. And that's what you will find inside the book.
0: I think there are a few things that I might love to add to that introduction, um, in that this is a book that really looks at the strategic uses of expressive culture in the face of ecological change. Now, some of that is defined as climate change, and some of that is more broadly stated uh, throughout the chapters and the experiences that individuals are having with their environments uh, shifting around them across time. Um, And... With this uh, presentation of uh, different chapters, we've been really interested in alternative views of what it means to be human and how people move in various ways through the world at a time when uh, so much seems to be crumbling or eroding around us and um, how people in different places experience uh, uh, climate change and circumstances of environmental precarity in deeply uneven ways, and in turn, how they work through and manage what it means to be in relation with others and everything around them, and how they work through and manage various political entanglements, uh, economic commitments and constraints, or social ties, Um, and all of this then uh, in relation to their convictions, their beliefs, their practices about their environment through performative and artistic means. And so this volume, I think, really urges us to listen differently across registers and with greater care and to see our pathways through this world as all tangled up together. Um, So, for example, um, in the case of my chapter, I might say that that includes an accounting of um, racial capitalism um, as it is tied to the deterioration of ecological systems and the social and political instability that comes out of that leading uh, towards circumstances that uh, push people to becoming environmental refugees. So some, those are some of the, the larger issues that we're tackling with this volume. And another point of interest that John raised here was this notion of uh, cultural sustainability. And I'd like to return to that again, because this was really kind of the crux of how we came together um, way back in 2015 um, within the department. John, as then chair of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, had this brilliant idea during our regular faculty uh, retreat to convene over ideas and uh, research. And that then led to John, Sue, and I being able to have an afternoon of conversation, um, talking through some of the experiences that we've had with our recent research uh, projects. And raising up this term of cultural sustainability and pretty quickly coming to reject that. Um, and so then we wrestled through the notions of sustainability and, you know, the implications behind that and why that may not be uh, the most helpful uh, way of framing this conversation. And through that, we cycled through um, the idea of viability, um, as well before also, um, kind of putting that to the side and finally settling um, with some degree of satisfaction on diverse env- environmentalisms as something that might be a little bit more um, helpful to advancing these conversations together. And so that's kind of the, the behind the scenes um, uh, uh, path that we have taken into creating this volume
2: going back a number of years now. Wow. <laughs> there's so much there. And I mean, there's so much in this, uh, in this in this um, edited volume that that we could just focus on one on one chapter and i'm sure just blow blow away our whole time here um so I, i really i really appreciate that you all took the time not only to to talk through all of this stuff with yourselves but then so cautiously and and um um intellectually curate these ideas to to present to 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 your audience um, and and it it kind of uh what what you were saying at the end there um rebecca kind of tees off one of my first um first questions about performing performing diverse um, environmentalisms and would you would you speak more on on what really that that means and why it's important to um the the cultural the ideas of cultural sustainability and viability even though if even though those aren't necessarily the the most articulate
1: yeah um, uh, yeah that's very good uh, Rebecca put an, a number of key uh, pieces on the on the table here but if we just take these three words performing diverse environmentalisms uh, I think in some ways uh, those three words hold the key to what we're up to in this book. Uh, Performance is at the heart of it, as Rebecca said. uh, We are folklorists. We are ethnomusicologists. There are a few fellow travelers uh, included in the book uh, uh, from uh, uh, friendly disciplines. But um, we're very interested in artistic performance, uh, the kind of performances that are uh, based in cultural tradition, often uh, crystallizing those traditions in uh, new and interesting ways, uh, so performing and performance is, uh, is definitely a key word here. Diversity uh, is another one. And uh, I think the book is very committed uh, to uh, looking at p- uh, populations that are marginalized, uh, that are often disadvantaged in terms of um, access to uh, power, uh, access to the capacity to shape, uh, you know, their own uh, destinies at the same time. Uh, I think we're uh, all of us are uh, uh, showing the the agency that does reside in these uh, communities. So um, there's definitely a kind of a an upbeat, a kind of uh, positive uh, attitude. I think that most of us, that all of our authors, bring to their essays, and then environmentalisms. And it's it's significant that we put that word in the plural. Uh, we're really interested in how local communities, each of them have, uh, has their own environmentalism. That is, they have their own way of uh, locating themselves in the natural world. And uh, we uh, are very mindful of that. I think we see that as a, as a, uh, a valuable uh, commodity. The commodity is definitely the wrong word there. A valuable resource, uh, not only for these communities, but really for um, the rest of the world. Uh, to tune into w- what are some of the possibilities in terms of uh, how we can um, locate ourselves in our in our environments. So, yeah, I would follow up there, Matthew, with those uh, the, the three words uh, that are very ha- have been very central to us. In fact, when we did the symposium, uh, we called it "Performing Diverse Environmentalisms." When the book came out, I think the editor wanted a slightly shorter title, and we we didn't mind. Uh, uh, performing environmentalisms. The diversity is built into it because um, uh, when you get together, the authors here, we we have coverage of, uh, uh, you know, well, I won't say, I would say every continent, well, excluding perhaps Australia, but wide coverage from various communities uh, all across the globe.
2: And that's one thing that I really appreciated about the book is that I mean, while I really do like a good case study that focuses in on one place, it was nice to see all of these different case studies that really took in a global perspective without falling into the trap of essentializing or, or you know, losing some of the 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 context of of local sensibilities or or. Um, their their own traditional eco, ecological knowledges. Um, and and that being said, would would you would would either of you like to talk about some of the um examples that you you bring into the book and and why you decided to that those examples were were good good for um what you were trying to argue?
0: Well, sure. I wonder if I could go back though and talk a little bit more about this whole performing environmentalism concept. Is that alright? Please, right? please. Yeah, um, I, I love what, how John has set this all up. And, and a couple of things that I really would love to add are this idea of performing um, and that embodiment of knowing. So human beings kind of uh, wrestling with and reconciling what it means to be a bodied being in this world and how that comes into encounter with place and placemaking. So in the introduction, um, the authors um, of uh, that introduction, John, Sue, and Katie, they really emphasize this notion of place and placemaking. But what does it mean to be a body within those uh, places and to make place through the body? And so that's why I think performance is such a powerful uh, lens to understand environmentalism here. Um, But I think I'd even go even further and say that um, besides looking at bodies in place and bodies used for placemaking through performance, through art, um, it's not just about living in places, but perhaps also loving and grieving these places. Um, another reason that performance is such a powerful lens for having these conversations about environmentalism and the um, types of actions that we need to take as human beings are that um, performance allows us to um, employ the arts of imagination. Um, And bring them to these extremely difficult, quote unquote, wicked problems that we're facing um, as a uh, species globally. Um, And to go beyond um, what it means um, when we as human beings are also seeing ourselves placed um, in a world that is inhabited by all sorts of other living beings as well. And so um, we need a lot of creativity to find solutions that accommodate ourselves, um, but also all other sorts of living um, species uh, and however living is defined, you know, more than human, um, beyond the human. Um, and uh, I think that that is a really important part of uh, looking at um, environmental humanities uh, that we can bring to this whole conversation and that we hope to do um, in part with this volume.
1: Yeah, I think that's really, uh, really a, a nice follow up there, uh, Rebecca. And, you know, uh, touching on Matthew's question, um, if you survey the uh, chapters in the book, uh, the, the, the coverage is really, uh, really quite, quite uh, uh, impressive. Uh, we have a couple of uh, pieces that are are based in uh, the Appalachian region of the United States. And uh, look at some of the environmental and ecological uh, crises that are um, impacting uh, that area. Uh, but at the other extreme, uh, if you wish, uh, we have uh, you know chapters that deal with, um, for example, uh, d- environmental issues in uh, in Ethiopia, uh, uh, the uh, environmental uh, nostalgia of. Um, 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 migratory peoples in Mongolia and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, um, the, the, difficulties of, uh, uh Nord- Northern Arctic, uh, peoples in terms of, um, you know, environmental, uh, changes that are, uh, affecting their access to important resources. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, the coverage geographically, um, is, is, is broad and also in terms of the different, uh, kinds of, um, uh, you know, communities the the ranging from for for example, my own work brings in the Andean indigenous communities of uh, uh, Colombia and uh, and Ecuador, and really uh, my work uh, on 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 this uh, problem uh, connects with so many so many examples globally where local indigenous tribal peoples are setting themselves up really as conservators. Uh, making the argument that over the generations they have developed ways of uh, uh, really uh, cultivating and uh, working—I uh, guess you could say—effectively with uh, the the environments where they uh, where they find themselves, and um, so we have that. But we also have urban kinds of settings uh, uh, that are reflected in a couple of the pieces. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think our attempt uh, was to be. Uh, you know, very inclusive and to show, as as Rebecca has suggested, that the issues that concern us in this book uh, are applicable uh, everywhere to all of humanity.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, John. And Rebecca, would you like to to add anything to that?
0: I think John did a fantastic job in in giving this really broad overview of what's included. Um, And really, in terms of looking at geographies, I think that that's um, one of the things that has really been interesting to us, one of the things that we perhaps um, haven't touched on quite as much is the sense that besides looking at certain um, like uh, politically bounded geographies, we're also kind of interested in looking at, for example, the humanities as a um, almost as a site itself. Right. And challenging the notion of, um, you know, this uh, this um, anthropocentric thinking. Uh, that has been uh, kind of a core to humanities research uh, to more of an ecocentric approach uh, that is recognizing the, the value of these ecological systems that uh, humans are only one part of. And this is um, one of the ideas that um, one of our authors, Aaron Allen, has really expanded on kind of this challenge to uh, the environmental liberal arts education that I think we're making a, a pretty solid intervention into. So besides, for example, looking at case studies in Colombia and uh, Mongolia and uh, Haiti and um, Appalachia and uh, um, uh, the Salish Sea, for example, we're, we're really trying to accomplish several things on several different levels here. And one of those is um, a challenge to how we approach these discussions within um, our academic uh, sites Um, of activity as well.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, it's, it's, it's all really interesting to try and suss out these different perspectives and, and thinking of it locally and, and globally. And, and, and you, you, you brought up uh, Dr. Dr. Allen's um, essay. And, and he also talks about the, the poetic, um, Aesthetics of of sound and music and and environment and I mean since since we are are focusing on on uh, uh, performances and um, the idea of um, how performance embodies really like environmentalism would you like to talk about sound?
1: Yeah, sound. I mean uh, that's where it's at, isn't it? Uh, uh, you know the uh, uh, the remarkable. Um, you know, uh, uh, phenomenon of, uh, of the human voice, for example, or of uh, uh, song and chant and, uh, uh, you know, other uh, musical uh, or music-influenced performances. Uh, you know, it's not just sound in, in, in terms of the way uh, I'm thinking about it, and perhaps this uh, is true of others as well, but it's uh, sound that is uh, articulated uh, in particular kinds of patterns and uh, that's really uh, for example in my own project I'm very interested in the sort of stylistics of speech and how those uh, influence uh, the uh, a, a kind of a um, uh, an ecological discourse uh, that can be very effective uh, both within communities in terms of rallying uh, people to the cause within the community but also uh, serve as a kind of a a means of uh, connecting to larger uh, communities that are interested in, in these concerns as well. So um, yeah, and I, I I know Rebecca has, there are other dimensions of sound that are important in her work as well. Maybe she could uh, tell you, tell us a little bit about those.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I'd like to uh, pick up though first on that connection of poetic aesthetics that you've raised um, and point out that John in his own chapter is looking at eco-performativity, which I think is a a form of eco-poetics itself. Um, And that uh, in turn connects to a chapter by um, Asepha de who is talking about um, eco-poetics of place um, of the Oromo people. Um, And uh, so I think that we have these lines uh, throughout the text that are really looking at connections Uh, Jennifer Post as well is really attuned to the ways that um, the Kazakh uh, pastoral peoples are expressing their environment and the ways that they're seeing what happens to their grasslands over time and how that comes across in song. And in the chapter that I wrote with uh, Lois Wilkin, we're looking at how um, uh, a lot of songs from uh, both classic repertoire um, folkloric repertoire explicitly invoke um, uh, images of um, uh, trees or uh, uh, spirits that come together to convey wisdom uh, to listeners. Um, and so the the language around this, the sounds that we make um, in expressing, I think, is very compelling to um, helping us to come into better, understanding of what it is that we are living and experiencing within our broader environments so that's a through line that i think really connects so many of these different chapters in terms of poetics of performance in terms of the linguistic um the ways that we communicate with each other
2: yeah and 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 I really like how it's also not only each other as human beings or as, as being, but also like with the environment um, in, in, in Jennifer Post's um, chapter, uh, they express, it, it sounded like Mongolian pastor, pastoralists express themselves from generation to generation um, interacting with the grasslands and listening to the grasslands to know when to move or, or not to. And, and in your chapter, Rebecca, you, you talk about, the, uh the 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 roots of the trees and and I and then also connecting how these trees talk to generations of people and 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 how the roots not only grow long physically but I feel like temporally um there's there's this this distance that that if we if we listen to the environment in in these different performativities and, and poetics then we can we can really connect in a way that that we aren't um, and, and and I don't know like could could would would you both be willing to talk about kind of the not only the spatial aspect but the temporal aspect of of how these poetics work
1: hmm man that's uh, there are a number of ways of coming at that um, but um, there's certainly temporality is very important when we uh, analyze performance right so all of us are interested in artistic performances and the sequencing, for example, in storytelling, uh, how stories uh, develop uh, uh, through the, uh, the plot until you come to the, uh, the revelation and so forth. And then how those stories, because they are structured aesthetically, they're structured very uh, effectively, how those stories can have an impact uh, on people. But another way I would uh, deal with temporality in, in reference to, the, to my own project uh, it has to do with the different generations, the different generations and communities. Um, uh, it, in many cases, the people I'm working with now, for example, in the Sibundoy Valley of Colombia or down in the Otovalo uh, area in Ecuador, but especially in Colombia, um, I initially as a young fellow uh, got to know their grandparents. Uh, and uh, and now the grandchildren of those people I earlier, I previously worked with, um are really capitalizing—I don't like that word either—are uh, working with um, uh, you know the traditional resources that I initially began to, to discover for and and enjoy in my conversations with their elders, um, but now they're they're drawing on those resources to uh, create a kind of a discourse. And uh, Rebecca mentioned this term, eco-performativity—a um, discourse that is focused on environmental problems uh, that uses the wisdom of these uh, traditional resources, but uh, fashions that into a, uh, a product that uh, is uh, very portable in terms of um, connecting to larger um, uh, international uh, discourses about the environment. So yeah, I love the idea of temporality and uh, those are just a couple of ways I, I would pursue it uh, in reference to my own work.
0: Sure. Um- yeah, that, that was all really beautifully put. I think also um, maybe something that comes up with uh, notions of temporality as well are um, how memories get conveyed, how they resonate across time and space and uh, generations. And another one of our authors that really focuses on memory work would be uh, Chiyasaka Akibara, who um, is talking about singing for the whales and um, the different things. Uh, songs that whaling peoples have carried with them. Mm. Um, And um, so I think that that memory work is really important to um, kind of revitalizing histories and also building these uh, spiritual and cultural relationships to both the whale and also, um, you know, more broadly uh, to communities um, in terms of empowering kind of this a collective cultural identity, the sense that there will be futures. And so um, Dr. Saka Akibara is, is really looking at the connections between whaling peoples in the Arctic, Alaska, and in uh, Cape Verde. And so looking across time and recognizing that these memories resonate in particular ways for people who have these backgrounds in whaling histories that they carry with them and that continues to kind of shape that identity. I think that's really powerful in terms of um, uh, conversations about temporality. With regard to um, my own work, I guess I, I would approach that slightly differently and say, yes, there's absolutely kind of the generational conversations going on and the concern with passing along these songs that have so long been in the um, in the repertoire. Um, people um, will sing about uh, leaves, leaves. Um, having um, restorative properties, having um, health uh, properties um, when made into teas and tinctures. Um, And that information gets conveyed very concretely through um, several different songs that are very prominent. Um, And yet also when we look at certain core um, sacred symbols, for example, the the Mapu tree, which um, is also called a sea tree or a silk cotton tree, um, these are um, kind of iconic uh, trees within Haitian culture that have massive buttressing root systems. Those trees represent this, um, this history that goes back to uh, the colonial past, but also represents um, you know something that is so Im- important for us to understand today about freedom and liberation. So it's holding within it the tree itself. When you see a tree... Um, a Mapu tree in Haiti. It carries with it those histories, those memories across time um, that people who understand that history will, will will know, will see. So specifically what I mean about that is if we look at the um, Mapu tree as, first of all, a repository for the sacred spirits of Vodou, the Lua, we see it as the sacred entity, this, this being itself. Um, that resonates with life and with spirit and um, with um, possibility and, and hope. Um, the Mapu tree itself, from a more ecological perspective, is something that um, is critically important for the role that its roots play, um, which are absolutely massive, um, in creating these, um, almost like these nature-made cisterns under the earth. Um, they're massive root systems, they just hold on to rain, Uh, during the rainy season and and carry that forward into the drier seasons. And so they then become almost like a protector for um, all of the plants, the flora, the fauna in the um, area of any of these um, mapu trees. And then on top of that, we layer other types of meaning, again, extending across time, um, in that uh, the trees themselves are symbols of liberation. Going back to the colonial era, When uh, people were escaping from plantations, they would often choose dusk as a prime moment to uh, flee to the mountains. And at this time, um, the mountains were uh, still quite forested and uh, still um, had many of these mapu trees. And with those buttressing roots that I described previously, as um, people were fleeing, they would often tuck themselves into the nooks and crannies and caves that were naturally formed amongst those roots. And for, those, for the colonizers who were pursuing them, they would see this as kind of, um, you know, these, these people were just disappearing um, before them somehow magically, when in fact there was a, a, a very uh, good and logical explanation for this, but it took on sacred significance for those who were fleeing as, you know, a liberator, as, as a source of liberation, a, a means toward freedom. So symbolically very important for them, whereas conversely, um, the Mapu trees took on this other type of signification for um, the colonizers who were um, feeling threatened by the loss of um, the system of slavery and seeing these trees then as kind of this magical uh, species that all of a sudden people would just disappear behind them and um, never to be found. And so from that time, um, Mapu trees have been um, sometimes signified as being you know, liberatory, very positive uh, sources of life. Um, and, and then uh, on the other side, um, in, in uh, much more racist terms, they've been kind of signaled as uh, these, uh, these uh, beings related to the devil, Um, And literally, this is language that is used to describe this particular type of species. So you see that whole performance of um, uh, the institution of slavery playing out before you and the reconciliation or the the wrestling with racism um, and the dire nature of uh, slavery in uh, the colony of Saint-Domingue being played out in that very species of tree. Those meanings then have carried forward to today where people still see the liberatory nature of these very important trees. And yet also there are still Christian, um, certain Christian Protestant sects that see the devil in these trees. And so it becomes this very important signifier where we are still reconciling, um, uh, wrestling with issues of race and enslavement and also freedom and liberation. So temporality all of those meanings are carried within that species.
1: Wow, that's a uh, that's an incredible story. All of that um, it it um, it it makes that that tree into a kind of a, um, not only a complex symbol but a multiplex. I think uh, you know with, with so many uh, different resonances. And uh, it you know I wanted to come back to um, uh, something that uh, uh, connects to to this in my uh, my particular work. And um, it goes back to uh, uh, something that Matthew brought up a little, just a few minutes ago. Um, and I, I, I would say that, for example, in the in the Sibondoy Valley in Colombia with uh, the indigenous people there, the Kamsa and the Inga, two uh, communities uh, in that uh, particular setting, um, they really see uh, nature as an interlocutor. And that's a very important, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, 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 change, I think, from maybe the way uh, people in, uh, in, in some places tend to think about nature as being a, a passive recipient of uh, human energy or human activity. But, um, but uh, uh, nature in, in the Sibundoy Valley is, is a very active presence. It's an interlocutor. Uh, in some cases, um, n- uh, natural spirits uh, uh, can uh, can be very beneficial uh, when uh, properly uh, uh, approached and accessed by, the, uh, by the, the Native doctors, the spiritual workers in the community. Uh, and that really is a kind of a foundation for this eco-spirituality uh, that is pervasive in the uh, mythic narratives and uh, some of the oral histories. Uh, so that whole storytelling uh, tradition there, again, involves a generational uh, connection uh, from elders to uh, younger generations. But then that, as I was uh, saying uh, earlier, serves as a, a foundation for formulating a discourse that is meaningful in the present, both within the community and beyond. And I, I wanna bring up a term I haven't used yet, but I think it's a term that has uh, a lot of uh, applicability. It's very interesting to contemplate this idea, and that is eco-sovereignty, eco-sovereignty. And, Um, Because these younger generations in in the place where I'm working are entering into uh, discussions in the political arena, uh, you know, both uh, sort of regionally uh, within the country, but also at the national level uh, within Colombia, for example, uh, we really have a kind of a claim that is being made uh, towards eco-sovereignty. Essentially, uh, what is being said is we know how to take care of this place. Um, and this, um, this discourse is being mounted to fend off this community. And this is a scene that's replaying itself all across the world. You know, from uh, development projects that are not originating within the community, but that impinge upon it. Um, in the case of the Sibindoy Valley, there are um, uh, projects, for example, industrial mining Uh, is uh, uh, located uh, projects are proposed and located in that area. Also uh, road building projects that um, uh, come across sacred uh, territory. Uh, So uh, I think uh, this is something that uh, is a theme that I'm following and I'm paying attention to. um, And I'm very interested to see how it plays out in other settings all across the Americas and beyond this idea of eco-sovereignty.
2: Yeah, that idea of eco-sovereignty is really interesting, and, and it actually leads me to, to a question that, that um, I have kind of about the complexity of, of this knowledge production and, and how we understand these different poetics and these different performances in, in, a, in a greater context. And it seems like there are some, some moments when there's a divergence or, or these knowledges are don't 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 meld well um in in one case in in one of the chapters about um um appalachia i and i don't remember which which one but it talks about the the protestant view of of how the um environmental um crisis right now is actually a precursor to the second coming and so it's like how do we I, I feel like and, and, and also speaking with these with these big, you know, public works projects or, or even even projects that are intended to, you know, be green or, or help, you know, CO two levels or, or or you know, well intended things like that, um, how how do we kind of balance these these different sets of interests and performances with each other? Or is, is that just kind of a a a a thing that we, we can't do yet?
1: Uh, l- let me just uh, mention uh, that the artic- the the chapter you're referring to, is Jeff Todd Titans' chapter, uh, and yeah, he he goes into that interesting scenario, and I, I want to hear what Rebecca has to say about this, but I'll I'll just say that um, this this does point to something that uh, scholars have to be uh, very aware of. Uh, we certainly don't want to sort of recolonize uh, people and. You know, put put them into schemes that are friendly to our our own discourses. So I think it's very important that we listen to what people are saying. Um, something that Sue Tui always emphasizes that we respect the diversity that is part of any community. So um, you know, I, I I don't want to be in the position of saying this community thinks uh, this this certain way because. Uh, there will be people in the community who do think that way and probably some others who don't. Um, so there are some cautions there, Matthew. And I think you, you raise a good question in terms of how do we reconcile, you know, some of the the different uh, perspectives of, of, of different stakeholders, uh, different players in these scenarios.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have um, a perfect response for this. In fact, I'm not even sure that a perfect response Exists other than to acknowledge that there's inherently going to be a great deal of um, friction surrounding the many different uh, perspectives that come into play. I agree with uh, John that um, both eco-sovereignty is something that we need to um, uh, give a lot more time to thinking about. I think that this is a very powerful model that uh, lends itself to... um, anti-colonial critique that helps us to move beyond um, some of the the legacies that we carry with us, um, especially within the disciplines that have been shaped so prominently by um, ethnography as a a prominent form of uh, research. And yet at the same time, I think that we need to be able to cultivate the ability to um, stand in between with these conversations and try to find ways to listen well um, so that we can better understand the multiple perspectives that are happening here and recognize that the dominant narratives that have been driving these conversations for so long, for example, those that we might see um, among the um, industrialized nations that are um, perhaps involved in uh, these uh, political statements on um, what it means to be environmentally sound uh, citizens, for example, or um, what it means to participate, for example, in the uh, the Paris Agreement or um, more recently in um, the agreements that came out of COP26, for example. So I think for us, it's not necessarily in this volume a project of Um, finding that balance per se, but rather um, trying to listen to all of the points of friction that are coming up um, within the, the small array of different um, experiences that we're able to represent in this text here. um, And to, to um, try to grapple with some of those points that are uncomfortable for us, that seem to be contradictory, that seem like they may privilege some people and, uh, completely neglect others. And I think that we want to be very careful in trying to understand the ramifications of those conversations that put us in those um that those points where we can potentially overstep by trying to overgeneralize or by trying to state, oh, this is the way it must be, for example
2: Yeah, yeah that's that's really interesting and I mean it's def- I'm definitely not being nice and imposing these questions, I feel like um, to to some extent or another. but um, another another thing that that you say in your chapter, Rebecca, that just really really caught my attention was um, about about the idea that recovery of a forest and habitat is not a solitary endeavor, but bringing the forest back to the island and, and in this case it's haiti will require collaborations of the spirits the people and the wildlife and and really uh you know like that the the the, the eco sovereignty and the intentionality behind that um is super powerful but one thing I, I i really always get like nervous about when when talking about these traditional ecological knowledges um is is the appropriation um especially within kind of our neoliberal capitalist world where, you know, you have John accidentally slipping and saying commodity or capital, capitalizing. Um, like how, how, how also do we, when, when we start looking at these, these, these alternative forms of knowledge, how do we avoid not appropriate the, appropriating them in like negative ways, but while like still, acknowledging them and using them in, in a positive light as a collective force? Yeah, that's,
0: sure. That's, that's such an important question. And I, I would say that um, I think we're always going to um, have that trap waiting for us. Um, you know, all of us are, um, you know, have uh, grown up in certain places, in certain uh, contexts. Um, we have certain types of um, educational backgrounds. We have certain types of families that we were brought into. Yeah. I would say, with regard to our research work as scholars who, um, you know, are largely emerging from this um, mostly North American um, educational um, setting, for those of us who are then doing research in um, other uh, locations, um, for example, myself and Lois Wilkin um, in Haiti, for example, um, I think that um, some of what can help us um, with navigating these challenges are the deep and long connections that we build over time. Um, and in both of our cases, both Lois's and my uh, cases, you know, this goes beyond you know, just um, going to a place and, and doing research. This becomes a matter of um, building, building long-term community, building families, building homes, and so both of us have the um, benefit of really having those, um, those different ways of operating in space. With regard to the, my portion of the chapter, I'm, I, I've devoted th- it to one of my mentors, um, um, who is, um whose given name was Anthony Pascal but everybody knows him um, best as Comperfilo. He was um, a very well-known journalist and activist. He um, was very well-known um, for um, television programs, radio programs. Uh, he was involved um, in democracy movement, d- democracy movements um, under the Devalier dictatorship, in fact, was um, uh, expelled from the country or fleed the country um, for the sake of his safety Um during the early eighties and then came back um, in 1986 to really push for democracy Um, throughout his life. He was really an ardent uh, advocate for vaudou and um, seeing vaudou as a uh, sacred practice or way of being in the world as central to Haitian culture and identity, seeing this as part of um, an essential destigmatizing lifelong work. So he then has, um, he has taken the role for me um, as as being somebody who guides me through some of these very, very tricky conversations, as somebody who, um, you know, set out for himself, you know, those, those pushes toward um, finding more inclusive and positive spaces for people to be themselves um, within uh, Haiti. So with him as um, my guide and um, somebody who I spent many many hours over many years with, um, I I really look to him in terms of how I tell this story um, and how I, um, help, uh, to bring his ideas to the page. Um, and so I, I think that that's about the best that I can say. I don't think there's ever a perfect solution to it. I think, um, that danger is always present with us as ethnographers, But I think the connections that we make with the people who guide us, our recognition of those who come before, who have um, led these movements, um, are are very essential.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a point very well taken. It's a tough question. Uh, You know, how we locate ourselves in these settings uh, doesn't have a, a simple answer, but... Um, but Rebecca points out that we are not casual visitors. I think everybody, uh, all of the authors in the book, uh, have these kind of long-term connections to communities, connections, that, as in my case, that actually span generations, um, and, uh, and we become part of families there. Um, I would say this also. I think uh, I, I used the word agency uh, earlier on in this conversation, and um, what I see happening in, in my research areas is I see people within the communities uh, exercising agency in uh, wonderful ways. Uh, And I'm just kind of following their lead. Uh, They're being very creative in terms of uh, how they cultivate, really how they curate their traditions. I've talked about them as curators of uh, their environments, but um, part of that or related to that is how they are curators of their own traditions uh, so that those traditions remain alive and remain vibrant. Uh, in the present and meaningful uh, going forward, uh, so I feel like it, it's uh, uh, the best I can do is to essentially follow their lead, and uh, and I find it uh, to be a very inspiring uh, place to go.
2: As I find this book very inspiring to just to just read, and and I think that this will be something that helps guide me um, mo- moving on with. With my own work and how, how I think of, of these, different, um, these different issues and challenges and, and really considering how to both connect but also give space and, and listen um, as, as well as try to contribute in, in, in whatever way I can. And there's so much more. Uh, that we, we could talk about. But um, I think we've, I, I've taken up uh, enough of, of both of your times and you've been so, so generous, generous and gracious in, in, in uh, coming on today. So I wanna, I wanna thank you um, for, for your, your time and, and sharing your, your wisdom. Um, and and before, before we sign off, I'd just like to, to ask what, um, what's up next for, for both of you and, and any, any current or future projects that you'd like to, to share with our audience? And and Rebecca, you can you can go first on this one. Oh sure.
0: Um, well, I have always uh, a number of different projects going on. Um, right now, I guess I would uh, say that I'm I'm working on um, the connections between uh, vodou as a sacred ecology, uh, deforestation, and efforts to um, plant trees across the country of Haiti. Um, And really how that all connects more broadly to notions of human rights, um, both looking at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a very important document, but also critiquing it and finding um, earlier models that speak to uh, freedom um, that have been authored by uh, Haitian philosophers and scholars and thinkers uh, prior to that document. Um, so that I think is really core to what I'm working on right now, as well as, uh, and so that I think really responds to the whole environmental justice um, angle of my research. And also, I, I'm wrestling with the ideas of ethics and what it means to be an ethnomusicologist working in um, spaces where the ground is uh, continually shifting under one's uh, feet, and what it means to be um, involved as a as a scholar. What it means to to um, uh, you know, make community in those places. What it means to talk about these very difficult issues, and how we can be um, better equipped to address um, points of conflict, and um, really find uh, just better ways of being uh, colleagues and caring um, uh, uh, partners in what it, in in moving forward in this life.
1: Yeah, that's great. I uh, I can say that. Um... Uh, yeah, well, thanks, Matthew. First of all, for uh, uh, bringing us together in this conversation that I've I've been enjoying. Um, but for my part, uh, yeah, I, I I think I'm 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 pursuing this uh, this theme of eco sovereignty. Uh, I'm looking at how it plays out in different scenarios across the Americas, uh, whether it be down in Chile where the Mapuche are resisting some uh, dam projects, you know, uh, down there or. Recently, in Oak Flats, here uh, in in our country, where Native people are uh, once again trying to uh, uh, preserve uh, their territories, and always I look in the middle of these scenarios to see how expressive culture is playing a significant role. And really, that's in a, in, in a way that's what we're about here with this with this book. Uh, we're 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 trying to uh, you know in a sense um, participate. In expanding some uh, some some areas in the environmental humanities, um, and in particular uh, sharpening the focus on uh, the, the the role that expressive culture plays in these uh, you know highly uh, uh, complicated uh, confrontations, um, I can say that the Dirt Project lives on. Rebecca is uh, the leader uh, uh, these days, and um, also I could mention that. At the recent meeting of the American Folklore Society, we did a forum uh, on the book, but also uh, following up on a theme that we, we uh, uh, conceived of as right relations. We looked at this idea of right relations and how that provides a kind of a, a way into a number of um, uh, environmental uh, projects. Uh, and that group uh, of, of uh, five colleagues plus me uh, in the American Folklore Society, out of uh, out of uh, out of that meeting, we've continued uh, our conversation, and so I don't know where it's going, but um, but I guess that's that's uh, my my point here: that uh, the the Dirt Project uh, is alive and well, and uh, and uh, uh, we don't know what the future horizons are, but it, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I I'd like to hear Rebecca tell us a little bit about her. I think Rebecca, you were involved in a project that. Um, actually came up in Glasgow or as uh, related to these, uh, this uh, most recent gathering.
0: Oh, sure. Um, just very briefly with COP26, the Global Climate Summit now, just in our very recent rear view mirror, um, I had the opportunity to participate in um, a platform um, called Music for Climate Justice that um, at the invitation of uh, Professor Warren Sanders. Um, and effectively, what we did, we were able to um, screen a music video that we have done um, together with Comperfilo, who is the, um, the primary feature of my portion of our chapter. Um, a music video that really looks at his role in um, planting Mapu trees throughout the country of Haiti, um, that we did together with the um, well known musician BIC, or Roosevelt Seyan. Um, and the uh, Haitian uh, filmmaker, Candy Verlis. So together we formed a team to really tackle some of these uh, tough issues about the importance of planting trees. And that then became um, kind of a core part of um, Music for Climate Justice and that presentation to representatives at the Global Climate Summit. So we were really honored to be able to bring Haitian music and be able to spotlight that and those concerns um. Board, um, ambassadors at that sun, um, at that summit with the hope that perhaps um,
1: somebody is listening that's very very cool Rebecca
2: yes it, I, it sounds like you're both um, engaged with some really 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 awesome and important um, ed, intellectual engagements right now I I uh, I'm excited to, to see what what you produced and I hope I hope that that um, your, your, your performance at, at COP did, um, did catch some ears, because um, I think what you, what you have to say is, 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 is super important. Um, and, and that being said, I, I hope everybody decides to check out Performing Environmentalism's Expressive Culture and Ecological Change. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful read. And once again, thank you, um, John McDowell and Rebecca Dirksen for, for coming on the show.
1: Well, thanks very much for having us. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much, Matt, for inviting us.